Quite soon, a happy event is going to take place in this family, bringing it an even greater glory than it has enjoyed up to now. But it will be a glory as excessive and as transitory as a posy of fresh flowers pinned to an embroidered dress, or the flare-up of spilt cooking oil on a blazing fire. In the midst of that brief moment of happiness, never forget that even the best party must have an end. For if you do, and if you fail to take precautions in good time, you will live to regret it bitterly when it is already too late. What is this happy event you speak of? Xifeng asked her eagerly. That is a secret which may not be revealed to mortal ears. However, for the sake of our brief friendship on this earth, I leave you these words as my parting gift. Be sure that you remember them well. When the three springs have gone, the flowering time will end, and each one for himself, as best he may, must fend. Xifeng was about to ask her another question when she was interrupted by the sound of the iron chime bar which hung in the inner gate. Four strokes, the signal of death. everybody welcome to red reading the mansion also known as redreaming the stone also known as re-greeting the monk also known as stoning the dream but most commonly known as rereading the stone this is kevin wilson joined as always by william jones will how are you doing today hello very well very excited to do uh, delve into this most interesting chapter. Any kind of opening? So, how about we how about we jump right into this? Do you want to uh, give the uh, the recap of last chapter's events? Sure. So, in the previous chapter, chapter twelve, we focus mostly on the character Jia Rei, who's uh, he's one of the men of the. Ning branch of the Jia clan and he's about 20 something you know youngish guy unmarried and really up to no good we we met him once before uh in an earlier chapter when he had to kind of stand in as the the teacher of the clan school uh and he showed himself to be kind of venal and partial and very bad at kind of maintaining any sense of order among the schoolboys. and recently he's been uh He's been kind of creeping on on uh, Wang Xifeng, uh, one of the one of the women of the Rong branch of the Jia clan, uh, essentially his cousin's wife. Uh, he's taken a shine to her, um, and he's spending a lot of time, you know, paying her visits, 
being very solicitous. And she knows what's up, and she thinks he's a creep. But she decides, rather than just telling him no outright, maybe she'll have a little fun with him. So what happens in chapter 12 is she asks him to come over to her chambers at night when no one will be around. And so he does the first time, and he finds himself locked in the corridor, unable to get out all night long, and he half freezes to death. And then when he gets home, his grandfather, who's raising him because his parents died when he was young, uh, his grandfather thinks that Jare has been out all night gambling and drinking and, and visiting prostitutes. So he beats him very severely, and then he makes him recite poems, I think, in the courtyard over and over. But Jare is undeterred, and he goes back and sees Wang Xifeng again. Um, and she pretends to be very disappointed and uh, and sad that he, you know, didn't make it the previous night. So she tells him to come again and meet her in a different place this time. And so Jare comes around again that evening um, to this to this different part of the house, and a dark figure comes into into the room, and so he immediately leaps upon her and begins kissing her and caressing her and calling her all sorts of uh, sweet names. And then somebody else walks in with a torch and he realises the person who he thinks was Wang Xifeng uh, is in fact uh, one of his male cousins, uh, Jia Rong. And, um, and so Jia Rong and Jia Chang, the guy who came in with the torch, tell Jia Rei what's going on, which is that Wang Xifeng has gone to see uh, her aunt, Lady Wang, who's kind of one of the matriarchs of the house and is also the, the mother of Jia Baoyu, our uh, main character. <clears throat> She's been to see her and told her that this guy is being a creep and, you know, you know, coming around and just kind of uh, being a kind of like sleazy, nasty guy. Um, and Lady Wang is furious and she's got people out looking for him. So these two, the two guys that found him, Jia Rong and Jia Chang, tell Jia Rei, well, well, we've got no, cho you know, no choice. We have, to, we have to turn you over. And Jia Rei begs them to help him instead, to help him escape. Uh, and they say, okay, you know, but you have to pay each of us 50 tails of silver, uh, which is a very kind of significant sum. Uh, so under duress, he, agree he agrees to pay them this sum of money and they sneak him out, but not before he is uh, inadvertently splashed with a whole bucket full of sewage. So he eventually makes it home uh, in a terrible state and he realizes that uh, Wang Shifeng was, was never really interested in, in him to begin with and has just been toying with him and he hates her but he loves her at the same time and he's in turmoil emotionally and so he begins to develop a kind of a sickness of the soul uh, and he grows weak and he takes to his bed and despite the efforts of many doctors to cure him there's nothing they can really do until one day a passing Taoist monk who stopped into the house to beg for food mentions that he has a specialism in curing uh, illnesses of retribution and Jare overhears him and begs him to cure his illness so he takes a look at him and he says I have something here which could cure you it is a mirror for the romantic and he brings out this object which is the two-sided mirror and he says there's a front side and there's a back side you must only look into the back side of this mirror. If you look into the back side of the mirror for three days, you will be cured. And so 
then the, the Taoist monk leaves and Jare picks up the mirror and he looks in the back and in the mirror he sees a grinning skull looking back at him and he's horrified by this and puts the mirror down and instead he looks at the front side of the mirror even though the Taoist monk said that he mustn't do that and in the front side of the mirror he sees Wang Xifeng the object of his you know sexual desires and she's beckoning him to enter the mirror um, so he, he follows her into the mirror and inside this mirror dream world they have sex and then he awakens from the dream and he's lying in his bed and he's ejaculated and he's staring in the back of the mirror into the grinning skull again um, and so again he turns the mirror over goes through the front has this kind of sexual fantasy dream and again wakes up and he repeats this over and over again until suddenly he's carried away by sorts of spirits within the mirror who kind of tie him up in iron chains uh, and he dies there and then um, and of course his family are very upset and they want to burn the mirror but suddenly the Taoist monk appears at that point and takes the mirror and then vanishes and finally we hear at the end of the chapter another of the characters um, Lin Daiyu who is our main character Jia Baoyu's cousin uh, and also his love interest we hear that her father Lin Ruhai uh, has fallen ill and so she must travel all the way back across country to see him um, and she's going to be accompanied by Jia Lian who is one of the men of the wrong branch of the Jia clan and is also the husband of Wang Xifeng this um, the woman who's been subject of this unwelcome attention from, from Jia Rei so that's pretty much what happens in chapter 12. In chapter 13, we have the death of Qin Shi, Qin Ke Qing, who is one of the young women of the Ning branch of the Jia clan. She's married to mm -hmm. Jia Rong. And she, for some time, has been afflicted by this, this illness um, uh, that many doctors were unable to cure. She was seen by uh, one doctor, who prescribed medicine that seemed to help a bit but unfortunately it hasn't been able to see to to save her and so sadly in this chapter she will quietly depart in the middle of the night uh, and then much of the rest of the chapter is based around preparations for her funeral and so we get to see the ritual and ceremony associated with it and that's and that's more or less it you know that there's a lot to talk about within um how the preparations for her funeral play out but uh plot wise that's more or less all that goes on i would say maybe it's a a kind of a somber uh chapter yeah although at the same time it's busy with activity uh there's a lot of symbolism uh there, there's the the contents of the dream uh are s at least somewhat enigmatic we see some character development for sure. We can talk about uh, whether or the extent to which uh, Wang Shifeng responds to uh, the dream. I've been thinking a lot about whether uh, her behavior yep. is at all affected by the contents of the dream yep. or whether she forgets the message, much as Bao Yu seems to forget much of the message of his dream uh, about eight chapters previously. That's, that's, that's the kind of thing I'm thinking about. But it's definitely a, this is a, a highly memorable uh, chapter, well-known, uh, much discussed, and definitely worth taking some time and, you know, um, 
carefully considering. So I'm really looking forward to this episode. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there's, as you say, there's a, a lot of real symbolic significance here. The, the opening of the chapter is this kind of fascinating uh, dream sequence. Um, mm. And then, even though, uh, as you say, the, the rest of the chapter is this kind of somber content, mostly about, you know, preparation for, for the funeral, there's also a lot of uh, symbolic and kind of hidden meaning encoded within it that I think is going to be very interesting to discuss. So I guess the first thing to consider is kind of the setup to the dream. Uh, and it reminds me a little bit of what we've seen before, where there is this kind of um, this slow transition from from waking to uh, falling asleep. And then it's not clear whether uh, you're sleeping or not, mm. uh, which is a common device in literature, in literature more generally, but uh, we've already seen it a few times in this novel. We saw it with uh, Jen Sheen's dream, uh, and we also saw it with Bao Yu's dream. And so, in this case, uh, we can see how, you know, it's it's very late at night. Wang Shifeng is sort of um, how, how should we say, kind of listless. Yes, exactly. She's she's listless because her husband uh, Jialian is the one who is accompanying Lin Dayu to see her, her sick father. And so basically, besides, uh, you know, sort of sitting around and, and chatting it up with uh, patients, Pingar, uh, there seems to be little to do. Yeah. Yeah, so you, you get the impression that, that Wang Xifeng and, and, and patients are made. They, um, yeah, they kind of sit around gossiping and they, they kind of snuggle down under the covers together. Yeah, they're incredibly intimate. Yeah, so, so we think that they're sharing a bed. Um, I think just as a way of keeping company, there's nothing to suggest that it's anything beyond like a platonic intimacy. Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree with that, yeah. Uh, but it, it is a kind of um, almost, uh, it seems as if it's a kind of intimate, a kind of intimacy that's almost uh, alien to, you know, us moderns. Mm. Uh, I've been thinking a lot about, um, it does seem that it, an artifact of having this... Um, it's kind of a paradox of this like highly hierarchical uh, social structure that on one hand there is this absolute divide between Pingar and Shivang, but at the same time you know the the intimacy that they share uh is unmistakable yeah it's an in, and it's an in, intimacy of equals really isn't it like yeah maybe yeah so maybe um it, it is like Pingar comes across as a, a confidant, yeah. a, um, a kind of a partner in crime, mm. uh, that kind of thing. And so even though there is, you know, there is the hierarchy, but there is kind of, um, I'm trying to think of an analogy. The only thing I can, I can think of is uh, Mr. Burns and Smithers. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I don't want to like, uh, I don't want to uh, characterize Shifeng uh, as the villain even though she did sort of um, lead to Swinney's death in the, the very last chapter. Yeah. Uh, she's definitely more uh, nuanced. But because, yeah, it is sort of um, this interesting intimacy uh, connected with status and, and, and power, I think. So they're, they're kind of tucked under the covers. Um, we're imagining it's kind of wintertime in Beijing, so it's very kind of cold. Um, mm -hmm. And they've kind of wrapped up warm. And I think they're probably lying on a kang, you know, one of these beds which has a stove built into it so that the 
the area where you're lying is warmed from underneath. And they're sitting up chatting and they're talking about where uh, Wang Xifeng's husband, Jia Lian, may have got to. Um, you know, how far along the route he will have got. And Ping Ar falls asleep. And then Xifeng is... We understand that she's sort of drowsy. Um, she's in that state between waking and sleeping. Exactly, yeah. When suddenly Qin Shi walks into the room. And we know straight away that this is a dream sequence because Qin Shi, the last time we saw her was two chapters ago when Wang Shifeng went to visit her and she was bedridden and she's kind of much too weak to, to get up and walk around. Let alone late at night, right? Yeah. Uh, so we think that this is exactly some kind of visitation by her, her spirit in uh, Wang Shifeng's dreams. This is a very touching scene. I, I hope we can render it uh, properly. <laughs> Let me see here. Um, so maybe I'll read a little bit from the Hawks here. Uh, so in the Hawks it says, So fond of sleep, auntie, said Qin Shi with a gentle smile. I shall have to begin my journey today without you to see me off. But never mind. Since you cannot come to see me, I have come to you instead. We two have always been so close. I could not have borne to leave you without saying goodbye. Besides, I have a last wish that you alone must hear, because I cannot trust anyone else with it. And, and so, and then she kind of, uh, uh, Chinsher begins here to uh, very gently critique uh, Shifeng for, um, you know, I guess certain imbalances to her character, one might say. Yeah, although I read it as um, I read it as a critique of the family generally. Um, okay, I, but I'd be interested to know what 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 you think. Um, I mean, yeah, it's this, it's this. She's making a final. She's giving her a final message before she dies, and so in the nature of these things, it's she's not just popping by to say hi and have a cup of tea. She's giving her a warning that she must heed. Uh, no, I, I do see what you mean. There, there, there is a critique of Wang Xifeng personally, where she says, how is it that you, who are such a paragon among women, that even strong men find more than their match in you, can yet be ignorant of the simple truths expressed in homely proverbs? And, and I, I want to isolate that one, the one expression there uh, that Hawks has rendered, uh, a paragon among women. And the mm. original there is, Jurfen, Dui Li de Yingxiong, which means more literally kind of a uh, a hero among the rouge powder. And so yeah. we, we've seen this expression, Jurfen, uh, the rouge powder before, as mm. this metonymical form that designates uh, young, beautiful women. But here, you know, she's like standing out amongst these beautiful women for her, uh, her strength, you know, her, uh, maybe her heroism, her... Mm -hmm agency you could say and yet it does seem that in the process she really has uh, overlooked some kind of some truths so simple that they can be expressed in the most homely of proverbs yeah you know when she mentions proverbs proverbs she's talking throughout this section almost in kind of riddle type language um she does come around to the point eventually but her speech, Qin Shi's speech, is littered with these quite kind of fascinating poetic idioms. 
so the first mm. of them in in the hawks is the full moon smaller grows full water overflows and this i think is uh, reading it, it looks like it must be from a very kind of early possibly like pre-chin source i think it may actually be from the book of changes the the yi jing so the phrase in chinese is yue man zhe kui shui man zhe yi when the moon is full it must then begin to wane and when when the water is full it must then begin to brim over or or overflow i just did a search for uh yue man zhe kui and yeah. it does appear actually in a number of early uh like pre-chin uh, kind of uh, pre-imperial texts, so yeah. it, it does seem to be a long-standing uh, expression that probably comes from uh, folk manners of speaking, and it s- seems to speak toward this this kind of um, I, I want to call it a like a ceaseless alteration, uh, this this indefatigable uh, waxing and waning of life processes mm-hmm. of power and weakness and growth and decline it's funny because i i just finished reading uh ct shah's negative review of andrew plaque's uh kind of famous book uh, archetype and allegory in dream mm-hmm. of the red chamber uh, which was reprinted in 2015 and ct shah goes into uh plaques for for positing precisely the things precisely the themes that uh chinsher is emphasizing in this chapter so i mm. guess chinsher is on plaque's side at least in these regard yeah uh in emphasizing uh you know the idea that this uh novel um kind of uh documents or uh showcases this sort of almost epic maybe even like mythological rise and fall of life and power and love and so on and so forth. Well, the thing is, I mean, this is quite a universal idea, isn't it? That, you know, as you said, things move in cycles and those who are rich and illustrious one day will be poor and ignominious the next. Honestly, it actually reminded me of most prominently the opening of the Romance of the Three Kingdoms, you know, this other great Chinese novel. And and so that opens with this idiom, fen jiu bi he, he jiu bi fen. So what is divided for a long time must unite. What is united for a long time must divide. It's often used to mean, you know, the empire long united must divide, etc. Um, expressing this idea that, you know, nothing lasts forever and, you know, and, and all good things must come to an end. Um, but likewise, all bad things will end eventually. But 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 this this section is full of these kind of idioms. So there's that one. It's followed very shortly after by this one, Deng Gao Bi Die Zhong, I think, mm, yes. um, which is literally climb high, must fall heavily. Um, but literally, <laughs> you know, the higher you climb, the harder you fall. I'm always amazed when the uh, the expression parallels. Uh, you know, an English language expression so closely. Yeah. It makes you wonder if there is maybe not like a Chomskyan universal grammar, but a uh, 
you know, like a, a Chomsky and universal uh, idiom or something. I don't, I don't know. Right? But there's, yeah, there's definitely universality of experience there, isn't there? And I mean, actually, it reminded me of um, something from the Bible. So in, in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs uh, 16, 18, it's the one, um, you know, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Um, it's mm. very, very, very similar in terms of um, that... Um, expressing that kind of sentiment, right? And we really see in this chapter, we're going to see uh, uh, Shifeng rise in status dramatically. Yep. And it's interesting mm -hmm. to see whether there's any like suggestion that she is taking this, this warning um, seriously. Yeah, there's this, um, th there's a very good illustration in later in this chapter of exactly the, uh, this this type of thing, and she uses this term. Uh, Qian Zhong uses this term, uh, he he yang yang, to describe the family, um, which is kind of simultaneously illustrious and yet complacent. So yeah, kind of rich and complacent. Uh, and I think that 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 more than almost anything else, like really hits the nail on the head, um, and and really describes what we'll see in the later part of this chapter. There's a pride you mention uh, from from Proverbs, I guess, yeah. right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's just full of it's full of these kind of idioms. So, I mean, there's there's one which I think is really great, which is later on she says, "Shu dao hu sun san," which means when the tree <laughs> falls, the monkeys scatter. Yes, the uh, chinka that we've mentioned previously, that the hanger ons yes. will all disappear. Exactly, exactly. So, so the idea being that. Um, you know, when a tree falls over, the monkeys that are in the tree run away. And in a similar way, when a great family falls, all of their hangers-on, all of their... Everyone who was sucking on the teat just, you know, disappears. They can't be they can't be kind of seen anywhere. Like, in a much more modern context, there's this... There's a song by the blues singer, Scrapper Blackwell, called Nobody Knows You When You're Down and Out. And... I think this expresses exactly the same um, sentiment, right? That um, when you're rich and powerful and influential, there are hangers-on galore, and everyone is constantly coming around hoping for some favor. And as soon as you fall, all of those fair-weather friends just vanish to the four corners of the earth. Uh, so, so she gives her this warning. She says, she says, you know, look, right now the family is is rich and powerful, but um, there is kind of weakness at the core and um, trouble is coming and you can either try to take steps to prevent that trouble or you know you can be completely swallowed up by it and that's what's so fascinating is that all of a sudden it becomes really practical advice on what to do uh, how the family should or how Wang Shifang in person should uh set up a insurance plan a uh a backup uh, yeah and of. and and so you know Wang Feng says okay i'm listening is there anything we can do just to prevent this you know is there no way we can we can just avoid it entirely and qin shi says now you're being silly auntie said qin shi <laughs> somewhat scornfully she says look there's nothing you can do to avoid this honor and disgrace uh mm. go around in cycles is, is what she says, you know. There's also another expression, uh, uh, you know, extreme joy 
turns to sorrow. Exactly. It begets sorrow. It, it, yes. Yeah. It's, it, it, in fact, is the thing which, which, which it serves as the conduit for sorrow almost. <laughs> it's so funny because you do hear it echoed in so many like modern contexts. It feels like I'm making light of it, but um, do you remember the TV sitcom Scrubs? The ones oh, no. in the hospital. Um, <laughs> Vaguely, yeah. Uh, so I mean, there's a there is a um, a character in that who is like the the hospital's lawyer, Ted, and he's this terribly like hopeless, downbeaten character uh, who is completely, you know, beholden to the um, the whims of uh, the kind of the the head doctor who runs the hospital. Um, and one of the things that he says at several points is uh too much ha ha pretty soon boo hoo um (laughs) which is like i mean in a very stupid way exactly the same sentiment isn't it you know um um that's good yeah no i I like this now we have a full the full range of uh, (laughs) you know high high and low culture yeah absolutely so she says no look the the bad thing can't be avoided it can only be mitigated um, you won't be able to avoid this entirely because this is just a, this is a natural cycle of history, basically. Things go in cycles. Nobody can be on top forever. But what you can do is try to make the make the fall manageable and and still kind of preserve yourself somehow. And she says there are basically two two ways to do this, right? Yeah, she gives a, a two point uh, a two point plan. A two point plan. So, so what are those two points? Okay, uh, first thing you got to do is you have to set some special income aside for offerings to the ancestral burial ground. Um, so, uh, so the first, yeah, I, I guess the, the first um, concern is more uh, spiritual than practical. Mm-hmm. Um, although I, I wonder if there might be a practical uh, underpinning to that. Right. If you're, I guess you know, if your ancestral burial ground is so poorly attended to, you might really like dramatically, um, quote unquote, lose face, and uh, it might be hard to, uh, you know, find a new form of occupation or a new source of revenue. Or is that is that yes, purely ex- a religious concern? What do you think? How, how did you interpret that? No, I think. I think you're right. I think it has both a a, a religious uh, or you know ritual uh, significance, and as you say, like a more practical, material one. Um, which is exactly that. You know, uh, if you aren't seen to be maintaining the the offerings to the ancestors, both people external to the family will speak negatively about you or form a negative opinion about you, but also you will lose the internal reverence for your ancestors which serves as a kind of unifying force within the family i think that's sort of equally important and so then the second matter concerns uh the clan school which we saw uh in a previous chapter a very uh, uproarious chapter where what what does she say here um she argues that the only way to deal with these matters is to invest now in as much property as possible in the area surrounding the burial ground and um, I, I think surrounding the school as well. Let's mm. see here. 
yeah, the school the school itself ought to be situated on this on this land that they buy near the burial ground. And then she suggests that uh, the whole clan should be there should be a system where every um, every year the uh, financing of the clan and the burial ground the, the seasonal offerings should be um, rotated. So it's kind of like a joint ownership system. Which is amazing for again for a ghost to give such practical, almost like lawyerly advice. Yeah, she's um, gone from like um, very kind of like sphinx-like riddle-like um, advice to um, not sure. yeah, very Your tax okay, take notes. You need to invest in the. You know, she, it's like it's sort of like a, a ghost appears to you twenty-five years ago and is like buy Apple stock, buy Google yes. stock, buy Amazon stock. <laughs> Yes, yes. Um, and put Although, them all put them all in a British Virgin <laughs> Islands trust company. Yes. Um. <laughs> um, although one way to interpret this would be, you know, if we consider this dream to be partly, uh, uh, you know, an actual uh, an actual visiting and partly a reflection of uh, Wang Shifeng's own psyche. You know, Wang Shifeng mm. is a managerial sort, so this yes. is the kind of thing that would appear in her dream. Right. Uh, yes. So that would be one kind of a more realist uh, perspective on this on this material, mm-hmm. and I, I think the realist and the kind of the um, the supernatural understanding can uh, coexist peacefully mm-hmm. um, or productively, even. And and so the idea is basically that they'll purchase all this land, they will have that land set aside for two charitable purposes: one, the provision of offerings to uh, at, at the ancestral burial ground, and to the funding of this clan school, um, mm. and so then even if they get into trouble and their other you know property material wealth is confiscated, because this stuff is ostensibly for charitable purposes rather than being the personal property of anyone in the Jia clan, <laughs> it will. It seems so familiar, doesn't it? Uh, it's yeah. like wait, yeah. in case your scheme you know gets like found out, you have to yeah. set some money away. Yeah. Uh, and label it as charity. So like, say it's your wife. Put it in your wife's you name. Know, <laughs> say yeah, yeah, or, or say it's a religious um, institution, and so it'll yeah. be tax exempt. It's so uh, true, isn't it? It's like it's, all, all of these like rich assholes who are like, oh, I'm going to donate a hundred million dollars <laughs> to like a charitable foundation. Uh, in my own name, charitable which I control. Foundation, coincidentally, <laughs> is you know is like devoted to pursuing interests remarkably closely aligned to mine um um yeah you know, that's exactly that, the same thing right that this is so relatable <laughs> i think it is probably a uh, a bad sign for our own times mm, we indeed. should treat that as a uh, a ghostly warning one thing that Shinsha's warning reminds me of is um actually the foundation novels by isaac asimov who's this science fiction mm. writer uh, and in those novels there's this kind of slightly mythical prophetic figure called harry selden who basically we understand that human science has advanced to such a stage that human history is capable of prediction through the application of kind of scientific methods not in terms of individual events but in terms of grand sweeps and one thing that they they call it they call it psycho history right psycho history exactly and one thing that he uh predicts is that this 
galactic empire that has existed for 12,000 years will soon collapse. And the chaos that results from the collapse of this empire could last 30,000 years. Or if they're, you know, if he is able to have his way, they can, they can reduce it to a, to a mere millennium, basically. So there's just a bit here that I can read. So psychohistory, which can predict the fall, can make statements concerning the succeeding Dark Ages. The Empire gentleman, as, he, as has just been said, has stood 12,000 years. The Dark Ages to come will endure not 12, but 30,000 years. And, and he goes on to say, it's possible, gentlemen, to reduce the duration of anarchy to a single millennium, if my group is allowed to act now. So, like, there's this uh, this parallel that stuck out to me there, which is exactly that, you know. The, the, the scope and the timescale is different, but the underlying idea is the same, which is you can do nothing, and the resulting hardship will be much greater in intensity and much longer in duration. Or you can take some simple steps now, and in doing so, make it that much more manageable. That, that's interesting. And, and, you know, in the, fan, in the foundation uh, novel, I seem to recall they, they set up two foundations at the opposite ends of the universe. Right. And so you, you could almost imagine uh, if we extend the metaphor, you yeah. know, the one uh, foundation is the, uh, in, in our novel, is the uh, ancestral burial ground and the other one is the clan school yep right and 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 those two nodes will be enough to uh, rebuild you know exactly the, the dynasty exactly it's it's it is quite similar in that respect and it who knows i wonder if asimov was ever read this and was influenced by it or um <laughs> somebody should do a fan fiction where they like just brutally like meld these two stories together i i would read it but i'm not volunteering to write it yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay, so she gives her this very practical advice uh, in her warning. And and Wang Xifeng wants to ask more, but Qin uh, Shi has to go. But she tells her that there's this happy event coming for the family, and it will be something glorious and happy, but it will be transitory. Although she leaves a, a riddle, so we should definitely uh, give the riddle. She, she compares this glory to the flare-up of spilt cooking oil on a blazing fire. I mean, yeah, if you ever have... Uh, I mean, for example, it's quite common in... Uh, if you've ever watched, you know, cooking in a, in a Chinese kitchen, if someone is cooking in a wok with a, a large amount of oil and they're throwing the ingredients around within the wok, occasionally the oil that's in the pan will catch fire and there will be this sudden flare-up that lasts, you know, just a fraction of a second. And it's that kind of thing I'm imagining. Very bright, very hot, but over almost as soon as it started. That reminds me of uh, the Buddhist uh, Hongchen image that we've uh, returned to again and again. The idea the, the, that this is the red dust. That this is, is the the dust that's been kicked up and it's become illuminated as red on account of the setting sun. That's one way I've been interpreting it. Yes. Uh, yeah, that's a good. So it's another, another this transitory, um, mm-hmm. fleeting moment, which is our mortal existence, etc. And, and so then the riddle is. Shi uh, Feng asks, "What is this happy event you speak of?" Uh, and then uh, Qin Shi answers, "That is a secret which may not be revealed to mortal ears. However, for the sake of our brief friendship on this earth, I leave you these words as my parting gift. Be sure that you remember them well." And then she says, 
this is the Hawks translation. When the three springs have gone, the flowering time will end. And each one for himself, as best he may, must fend. So what do you, how did you interpret that? There's a, there's a literal meaning uh, in the first line, which we can understand as three years from now. You know, when three springs have gone. So in the Chinese, san chun chu ho, after three springs have gone, zhu fang jin. Yeah, he says the flowering time will end. It literally means all fang will be done. And what is fang? It's a character that we've seen before, particularly in the dream sequence in chapter five. Mm -hmm. And it's a character that implies kind of greenness and the natural world, but there's an inherent kind of virtue and goodness and beauty in it. But I think this chun we have to understand is also having a symbolic meaning. And that presumably is the three chun sisters, right? Yeah, yeah. That seems to be the obvious um, interpretation, right? And so maybe we'll see in what sense they have gone, right? Whether, whether they uh, are married off or other circumstances. Their leaving is foreshadowed in, in the poems in chapter five. Mm -hmm. um, and so we think, yeah, once they, once they have all left the household, that will be when things start to get really bad. And then the, uh, so, so Shifeng was about to ask her another question when she was interrupted by the sound of the iron chime bar, which hung in the inner gate. Four strokes, the signal of death, which it seems clear here the, the idea is the, um, the connection between the number four, si, and the, the, the word for death, si. Yeah. Right? And so that's why, uh, why four strokes would, would signify death. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You know, this is also chapter 13, but I don't, I've never seen any correlation in, um, in Chinese language or culture between 13 and unlucky. No, and uh, inauspiciousness. I think it's entirely it's entirely a, a Western or European um, thing. So it does absolutely it does happen to be coincidental, but but it's r remarkably convenient coincidence. Uh, then again, we could. I wonder whether the author was thinking of um, this novel in terms of uh, twelve chapter parts. In which case, we are beginning the second twelve-chapter part, and maybe the uh, maybe there's some kind of connection there. Yeah, um, yeah, because it's 120 chapters long, right? Um, right? And I mean, that was a common length through the Chinese novel form, right? So <laughs> easy enough to divide it up into ten sections of twelve chapters. So maybe I, I suspect that might be uh, mm. an underlying concern. Right, so maybe we've we've entered a new phase of the novel. I think. So, um, what happens is we get to see several different kind of characters' immediate reaction to hearing the news of Qin Shi's death, um, and this has completely, you know, it's cast a pall over the the whole household. So, the four strokes signaling death cause Wang Xifeng to awake. So, you know, that really makes explicit that the, the preceding section was 
uh, a dream. And she is described as being in a cold sweat and in a kind of uh, trance-like state. I think Hawke says, too stunned to move. Um, uh, and we see in the next paragraph that um, Jia Baoyu, when he hears the no- noise, when he hears the news, rather, he has this stabbing feeling in his heart. Mm. Uh, and he he kind of spits out or vomits up a mouthful of blood. Um, yeah. That's how kind of painful an experience it is for him. There almost seems to be an indication that he also um, had some premonition of the death in his dreams, although it's only a passing comment. Did you get that? Im- did you get that sense? Um, it's a little bit unclear. Explain that for me, I suppose. Um, it says in the Hawks translation, the news of Chinsha's death came to him in the midst of dreams, causing him to start up in bed with a jerk. And that's right before uh, he has the the sudden stabbing pain. I'm looking for it in the original to see yeah. Yeah, if it it's says, not um, interpolation. N- no, I don't think it is. It says, uh, So from within a dream, yeah. heard, heard it said that Qin Shi had died. Um, mm. So I, I think that that's right. I think there's a suggestion that he was somehow apprised of it through his dreams. I mean, sometimes in our dreams, we will incorporate um, sounds and voices into the dreams as if they were naturally a part of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and so maybe if your alarm clock is going off, you will imagine in the dream that a a church bell is is ringing in the distance or something Mm -hmm. to that effect. And so maybe maybe you you could imagine uh, Bao Yu overhearing overhearing maybe the maids talk about Chincha's death and these words filtered into the dream. It's not clear whether it's meant to be, you know, he's having a premonition or a visiting or whether he's simply uh, slowly becoming alerted to the fact. And, and as for the rest of the household, we hear that, you know, young and old, noble and servant are all bewildered and distressed by it. Um and um, it, it twice uses it twice uses in the original Chinese this um, rhetorical form, which is quite common in Chinese, which is to say there were none who uh, kind of double negative. There were none who were not X, or there were none who did not X. So he says Wu Bu Na Men. So there were none who were not uh, kind of depressed and melancholy, and. Um, and then goes on to say, more, bu, uh, tong ku. So, again, there were none who did not, like, cry out bitterly and weep, weep sadly, weep painfully, that sort of thing. So, so, I think it just emphasizes that the the sense of grief and lamentation is is shared by all within the household, and you know, everyone, regardless of station kind of feels this pain. So, I mean, it says, those older than Qin Shi thought of how dutiful she had always been. Those in her own generation thought of her warmth and friendliness. Her juniors remembered how kindly and lovingly she had treated them. Even the servants, irrespective of sex and age, remembering her compassion for the poor and humble, and her gentle concern for the old and the very young, all wept and lamented as loud and bitterly as the rest. So, 
so yeah, it's it's a you know it's unlike Jare's death, which you know certainly was be- met by by um by grief on the part of his close family and 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 no doubt by by others as well. This is much more kind of earth shaking. Um, yeah, for sure. Maybe this again. This could be compared to when Inglian was uh, kidnapped. We will recall that everyone was very fond of uh, of her as a child, and uh, the whole family was um, was shook by her sudden disappearance. And and so she was taken from the 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 Jen household, and now in a sense, Chin Kaching is being taken by fate, if you will, uh, from from the the Jia household, and, and from this, you know, or from the mortal coil, as it were. 